culture theologians. It's me, your main guy, John. And first and foremost, you're probably going, I haven't heard your voice in a really long time. And you're right. You haven't. We took a small little break. I know all of you were dying about these last couple of episodes of His Dark Materials, and don't worry, we're going to get them to you. We're going to drop all these episodes at the same time so you can listen to not only our recap of episode six, but also episode seven and eight, because this season ended pretty amazingly. But for right now, you're here to talk about episode six of His Dark Materials. However, Before we get there, just want to make sure I reintroduce myself. Um, We are the pop culture theologians. I still say the royal we because Marcy is coming back for our next season. I'll be reporting more on that later. Um, But we are the pop culture theologians. We're two academics who worship at the altar of pop culture theology. We just find it so fascinating that these shows, these characters and everything have such a larger role and impact in our modern day world and specifically their roles in which they play with religion, theology, and everything that comes in between. So we call ourselves the Pop Culture Theologians. Um, You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pop Theologians. And if you want to follow me, because why wouldn't you? You can follow me on Twitter at jerickson 85 or on Facebook and Instagram at the same uh, username. Um, It's so good to see so many of you still liking the page and following along and seeing people come and resubscribe and um, listen to our episodes of either this season or the previous season. So even though we went away... um, for a little while. We all need a little break. We're so glad that you're still subscribed to come see us again. Um, So before we get into uh, the recap of episode six, we do want to talk about um, some of our favorite stuff that we've been doing this season is figuring out um, amazing young adult novels that Marcy and myself uh, really love. And this week's book that I've chosen is quite an incredible one. It was made into a number one movie at the box office. Um, No, it's not The Hunger Games. We did that a little while ago, but it is um, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda or Love Simon, as so many of us um, have come to call it. Um, Love Simon, um, I'm going to refer to the movie uh, specifically, uh, changed my life in so many ways. I love seeing these characters on the big screen. I love seeing everything about it. And so it was just truly incredible. Um, If you haven't read the book that it's based off of by Becky Albertalli, I strongly suggest it. Um, It is a great book that really helps address some of the the nuances of growing up as an LGBTQ person in today's world, um, specifically dealing with family, dealing with friends, coming out to yourself. I don't even know what it means to come out in a time like when people have like TikToks and Instagram and Twitter and all of these things in which people can get outed on or, you know, really discover themselves being, you know, targeted or bullied. Um, We just had good old fashioned taunting in the hallways, although that's not okay, regardless. Um, However, I love this movie. I love Jennifer Garner in this movie most of all. And I remember clutching my pearls when she told Simon that he could breathe again because uh, that scene just gets me every single time. I'm probably going to go watch it tonight. But um, 
If you are looking for an amazing movie um, to talk about with your friends and family um, about what it means to be LGBTQ or what it means to come out or if you're dealing or working with someone that might need a different resource because they um, want to look for something, um, I think that this book offers such a unique way to look at how we can create safe spaces within our friends, within our family, and how they've maybe always been there for us all along. So that's my full throttle endorsement of this book and movie. It's incredible. My friend Alexandra Ship um, is in the movie. She's amazing. I love her to pieces. Shout out if you're listening, Alex. Um, but there is so much amazing young adult literature out there that deals with these topics and we need more we need more literature that deals with lgbtqia plus issues um and if we if you want to write it go write it but you know we need to make sure that kids today have these resources because we live in a really scary place and we're going to make sure that people feel that they're not alone however feeling not alone is something we're going to be talking about in this next um, episode coming up right now. So before we go any further, why don't we go back in to the world of dust? Okay. So many of us know with this show, demons are the entire story. Um, his Dark Materials has this appeal to so many of us because of these cute little furry soul-like creatures that many of us saw within the marketing, within the book, or the ones that we imagined ourselves kind of having who would be our demons. Mine's a rabbit if you look at the um, graphics that we have for the episodes. Um, but it really resonates with the fans. And so when we look at the ways in which our souls as our companions are living outside of our bodies, um, it really is what helps us make and feel like we're human. It gives us um, a purpose, a cause, and a person in many ways. And so um, when we see these people without demons, um, as we've come to know, it's terrifying. It's scary. Um, one great review said that it was like seeing a zombie. Um, we're not used to seeing a person without a soul, a person without a demon. So um, the whole point about demons is why we're actually here for the books. And so if we, we all remember, um, you know, the, the absence of a demon is something to put us into abject horror. And so this week with the episode titled The Demon Cages, um, it's quite a scary episode. It gets really dark. And we understand that the bond between human and demon is in completely sacred. There's a reason why in the first episode, they talk about that. They take the time to explain and set up the world. And why when we look at how the characters cross over into the other universe, they're not there. And what does that do? And what does that see? People long for their demon. Um, so we really are continuing to focus on the bond and the bond only gets more complex from here on out, but the stakes are really real. Um, and we see that within some of the last episodes of this season. Um, so posing as Lizzie, um, Lyra and Pan um, blend in among the captive children at Bolvanger. Remember they were captured the last time. So um, they're posing in here. Um, 
And, you know, they're amongst all these other children who are terrified. And Lyra being Lyra, the smart aleck that she is, she tells the children the truth of what's happening to them here at Bullbanger because many of them don't know. Many of them don't realize that what happens after one of their friends goes away or they don't see them or they become uh, an individual that they see with a shaved head because they're walking around um, is starting to terrify many of the children and what goes on here. And this is really supposed to symbolize, you know, some of the coldest reaches of hell and, and, and personhood because the name of returning to this type of innocence, this type of uh, singularity where, children can be free and roam free almost like the ways in which they're trying to get to the garden of Eden is invisible and we can't get there for many reasons. Nevertheless, that it is Mrs. Coulter creating new ways to torment and destroy children from what they're doing. So um, we really have to look at how we continue to explain the role of demons in this world um so then the best part about this episode is that we see that lyra is finally reunited with roger and and we learn that the gobblers are experimenting on these children um and the process itself is called intercision um and it's to sever the bond between child and their demons and what it is is it's this place where individuals are starting to um experiment and harm children of uh, the the ways in which the magisterium which is obviously a reference to the catholic church are abusing and severing the bond between children and soul um, is no different than what we think about when it comes to terms of how the catholic church turned a blind eye to priests um sexually assaulting and raping um individuals that is this no different than the type of severing of individuals souls when you um sexually assault or rape them that's a type of separation from the body and the harm that it does is unexplainable and that's why lyra much like many other individuals like activists in our real world are trying to raise the alarms to tell everyone about what's going on and to tell everyone that um they need to get out and that they're going to get out and that the Egyptians are coming. Um, however, uh, they need to figure out ways in which they can all band together right now because right now they're just kids and it's in this big world and adults, adults are everywhere and they control it. But what Lyra does best, I think we've shown throughout the series, is that Lyra's just as smart as the adults, probably smarter. Um, uh, that innocence is bravery and that bravery is going to save a lot of people. So um, we start to see that, you know, Lyra um, begins to convince Roger and another girl that the Egyptians are coming to rescue them and um, she needs to start forming an escape plan. Um, and so by forming the escape plan, they're going to be able to identify how they can not only get out of Ballvanger, but how they can get out alive with their um, demons still intact. And so what they do is that they put together a little, a little plan um, and they try to get away, but what they find is an opposite of an exit. And what they come to see is the realization of what they've been trying to run against. And it's um, the room where the children who have survived the procedure, there are very few of them, um, are there and they have cage demons or they're sitting lying and staring into this space that is completely 
um, away from who they are. And so their heads are shaved and they're just sitting there counting these alarm bells. And what we understand is that these kids have lost a piece of themselves, their souls. Um, And it's quite scary. Um, And so one of the scenes that I found to be the most disturbing is when the two scientists are literally sitting there talking about how they've been killing children in the name of science. Um, And that, you know, they're cutting their demons away, but they're trying to find a way to continue this mission that Mrs. Coulter has really put out and um, how they continue to move forward to freeing people from this original sin, this sin that they feel like these demons are creating is, you know, something that they're trying to do through this violent nature in this process. Um, But then what happens, of course, is HBIC, Mrs. Coulter herself, um, comes to visit uh, and she wants to see her new little machine. She wants to see her new little toy. Um, We find out that five children have survived the procedure since she visited last um, and that now the patient can be conscious during and after the treatment. Um, And so what this is a metaphor for is that it's like a lobotomy, like these kids can have this done to them and still quote unquote survive. Um, And it's quite disturbing because Mrs. Coulter seems to have no feelings when it comes to anything here. Um, So Mrs. Coulter visits Bullvanger um, and she's trying to hide from, um, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that she doesn't want to recognize she's obviously had a lot going on with Lyra understanding who she is and maybe their role together but um the children um understand and see Mrs. Coulter because she visits them and it's a little disturbing with how she acts very mother-like uh, to all of them when she knows what's going to happen to them um and so Lyra however is with all these kids and so she has to hide from them because she doesn't want Mrs. Coulter to see them. And so what she does is has the best upper arm strength and leg strength I've ever seen, but she hides by hanging onto a bed. And so what goes on then afterwards is the scientists um, take Lyra and Pan and take them to this new separation machine um, and put them in there to start the process. And what they're trying to do then is see how they can show Mrs. Coulter that they've succeeded um, and that they're going to be able to continue to develop this scientific approach to separating demons from the children. But Lyra is going to be the one that gets it. And so what happens is, is a moment of uh, true pain and agony um, because of the bond between Pan and Lyra that we've come to love or the bond between any demon um, and their human counterpart um, as well as Lyra then starting to scream that she's going to recognize that she is the daughter of Mrs. Coulter. She uses that power to tell the people who she is so that way they stop in the intercision process um, and halt the experiment um, by then ultimately saying that the word mother still resonates with Mrs. Coulter. She comes in, she sees that Lyra is in the cage and she screams mother and she allows just enough time for them to shut down the machine and not harm Lyra. Um, It's quite haunting because not everyone has this privilege of having someone like Mrs. Coulter as a mother, but at the end of the day, Lyra 
finally vocalizes that, you know, she is the daughter of Mrs. Coulter. She's the daughter of the HBIC herself. And they are able to shut down the machine. Um, the interactions between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra in this episode are some of my favorite in the entire season. They are just incredible. Um, and what kind of follows in the act two of the episode. Um, because Mrs. Coulter doesn't treat Lyra as a child anymore. She's really talking to her about not only the process, but really about understanding that she is her mother and that she would never, you know, try to hurt her. But what we understand is Mrs. Coulter wants to get to her end goal and she's willing to sacrifice anyone to really get there. Um, but something that she really said here that stuck with me is she says, grownups are infected so deeply with dust that it's too late for them. And they're condemned to this life of sin and guilt. And this whole idea for this project is an attempt to escape sin, guilt, regret, um, trouble, pain, agony, um, and they see that as having a soul, having feelings maybe, um, is bringing to that, having this type of free will, this free choice um, that demons allegedly bring. Um, they identify them as of the root. The magisterium feels that they're the root. So she's convinced, um, like many other people who are helping with this project, that if they get rid of the demons, um, that everything will be okay. You know, sin ultimately is the problem. Um, sin was brought into the world in the Garden of Eden, but sin was brought into um, the world and causes people to do quote unquote bad things. This is where we really understand why Mrs. Coulter is doing this. She, her former husband was killed um, by her. You know, sin drove her to cheat. Sin drove her to kill his wife's bastard and to drove Azrael to kill him and to do all these horrible things that started this whole cacophony of craziness that's going around and so by trying to abolish sin she's trying to abolish the guilt that she has and so um by attempting to ingratiate lyra um which by the way doesn't work she's trying to i think more importantly verify to herself what this whole process means and does um, however, that's not going to happen in Lyra's book. And so um, what she really comes to understand is that her mother is gone. Her mother is, it's actually not her mother, um, that it's this person that has a very strict set of ideas that she's going to follow and that she's going to continue to push forward no matter what the cost. And so she is without redemption but the one thing that Mrs. Coulter also does value is power. So she knows that um, Lyra has an alethiometer and she wants it because she knows the magisterium wants it. She knows that Lyra has a bigger purpose. And so she starts to lie to her. But Lyra, being Lyra, knows that she's too smart. And so um, she tells her it's in that tin can that um, where they hid the spy fly. And then Mrs. Coulter, in this really uniquely choreographed way with her monkey, her, her demon, um, which is just something that if you watch this entire season, their moves are so in sync and in line with each other. And the actress is just so amazing that what goes on here is that um, she tries to pry it open and then the spy fly 
flies directly into her face and Lyra and Pan are able to escape and then they are able to lock her into the room um, by breaking everything um, with a fire extinguisher. And the scene that follows, this shriek that they both have at the door with each other is a rage that is, I felt it through the screen. It is just like mother, just like daughter. Lyra and Mrs. Coulter, for as much as they don't want to be apart or love each other, are bonded. There's a connection there. And we discover that more in the later episodes and the later books, for sure. Um, But they're one of a kind. They're one, they each have a piece of each other inside of them. So it is, um, it is probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode. So um, what happens next kind of goes really fast. uh, But more importantly, uh, Lyra's plan now really is to come out to date that we are going to um, get a little battle scene here. Um, So Lyra sends Roger to get the severed children. Um, She is there to get her own things as well. Um, And so what happens is she uh, then wants to make sure that they destroy um, the intercision machine um, because she doesn't want anyone else to have anything happen to her. Um, so she makes sure that that gets destroyed. And then um, afterwards, uh, Mrs. Coulter um, and Lyra escape. Um, I'm sorry, Lyra escapes and she destroys the base's generator and then the children run outside. They're being attacked, however. But then who... Um, comes to rescue, Yorick Bernison, Lee Scoresby, and the Egyptians. And so they are there to help save the children. Um, it's quite the battle scene. You have Yorick running around on top of things and just straight up murdering people. Lee Scoresby's out there just killing people. The Egyptians are fighting the Tartars um, in the courtyard. And uh, basically, they're sitting up there fighting. Um, it almost looks like all is doomed. Um, however, uh, luckily, the witch Seraphina Pecola comes and she kills the scientists and the mercenaries in like the quickest, coolest, one fell swoop, murderous action of them all. Um, and she just cleans the slate and she wipes out every single one of them and does a matter of seconds. It's uh, fabulous to watch. This whole episode is beautifully shot. Um, because it's in a very cold, desolate place. Um, and it's hard to put life in that. But the point is to not have life because they're trying to end it by separating children from their demons. Um, so they win. Um, the Egyptians gather up the demons and um, the demonless children, the people that are still there, and they are going to leave. Um, you see Mrs. Coulter uh, leave um, and she escapes. Um, she has to crawl through like the vents um, and get away because she knows what's going on. Um, and so Lyra, Roger, and their demons accompany Scoresby and Yorick in a hot air balloon um, because they need to go still find Lyra's father, um, Azrael. And they're in Solvbard. And so they look and they are understanding that they have another part of their journey left to go. We still have two more episodes left to go. We still have a little bit more of a journey. Um, And up in the air, uh, we find out that Lee owed a debt and that Serafina Pekala, who seems to be like the grand mistress of them all and understands all the pieces of this puzzle, um, are putting them in together and that, you know, his contract... um, is fulfilled uh and that understanding however that his contract is going to be extended in not an actual way but 
he's actually fallen in love with this little girl named Lyra, not in this sick, perverted Catholic church way, don't get me wrong there, but in the ways in which he cares about her, he cares about her mission, and he wants to make sure she's protected. The same thing with York Bernison and what happened there. Um, and so they are understanding in the which in way he's going to continue to fight along her side. Um, he's going to live free or die. Um, and continue to help Lyra or the chosen one fulfill this like crazy destiny that everyone's been talking about. Um, Serafina says to him, the world is in your hands, Mr. Scoresby. And I'm delighted it is because she knows that Lee will die for Lyra if he needed to. And that type of protection, that type of gift that you could give someone that as serves a bigger purpose is something you can't buy with a contract. You need someone to actually believe in you. So um, she leaves uh, and they go off and the balloon goes into the night uh, and end of episode not um of course we need a little bit more theatrics and so shortly after there the balloon is uh be like just constantly attacked by these like cliff things these cliff monsters they're called cliff ghasts um they're like these wing creatures they kind of look uh like little demons almost but uh they are gonna like eat them alive or something and so they uh leave um and what happens is is that in attempting to shoot them off or get away from them, um, these winged creatures force Lyra um, in this big basket, which is holding like a polar bear and two other people and like another person. It's all crazy. Um, but what happens is, is the basket is rocking back and forth and the bottom door swings open and it tosses Lyra alone outside um, toward this like icy cliff below. And so you're wondering um, what's really going to happen to Lyra in this overall case? Is she going to survive? Like, how far did she fall? Like, who can survive a fall like that? I don't know. It's kind of one of those you just have to take it for what it's worth and believe it. Um, and that's the end of the episode uh, with Lyra falling onto the cliffs below from a hot air balloon. Um, it's quite the amazing episode. I mean, it's called The Demon Cages for a reason. And it's really, its purpose is to ultimately continue to push our narrative and, and how we think of what is the role demons play? What role do they play within our development? Is it as bad as what Mrs. Coulter says with sin and everything that that's a part of? Or is there innocence to it? Um, and the bond that we choose to believe is more than just what she's saying. It's not sin, it's beauty, it's friendship. Um, it's truly some of the ways in which I think the show is, is beautiful. But the character development that we're getting between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra is something that I think the, keeps the episode ticking. Um, for those of us that know where we're headed, um, them getting into the balloon to head to Azrael is just setting up another chess piece into the final parts of this first season um, and ultimately the first book. So we have a lot more to do. We have a lot more to cover. Um, I'm going to be back here with you for the next episode, which is called The Fight to the Death. It's episode seven of His Dark Materials. And I'm so excited to recap it with you. So um, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you leave a like um, uh, and comment for us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Tell your friends if they love the show or if you're tweeting about the show, tell us why. And I will make sure to see you next time right here on the Pop Culture Theologians. Bye, everyone. <laughs>